Sometimes, the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And now, your host, Ben Adelberg. Welcome to the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. I am your host, Ben Adelberg, and this is episode 70. Well, I never thought I'd see it again, but Tiger Woods won the Masters and picked up his first major championship since 2008. To be completely honest with all of you, I haven't really unpacked what this victory really means yet. Truthfully, I don't think we're going to know for quite a while. Is this his last major win? Will it sit side by side with Jack's last major victory in 1986 at the Masters? Or are we just getting started on the last epic run of Tiger Woods? What if he wins the PGA or the US Open at Pebble Beach? The next three months are going to be absolutely incredible. I hope that Tiger stays healthy because I can't wait to see what happens next. Congrats to Tiger. Congrats to Augusta National because the Masters seems to always deliver incredible drama and it's always a perfectly executed tournament. Let's talk about the amateurs at the Masters. Four amateurs made the cut the most since 1985, and around here we are super proud of two of them in particular. If you think you had a good Masters week, well, Devin Bling, last year's U.S. amateur runner-up, made a hole-in-one at the Par 3 contest, made the cut on the number, met his hero, Tiger Woods, and played the final round with the defending Masters champion, Patrick Reed. The only amateur in the field that might have had a better week? That was Victor Hovland. The U.S. amateur champion made the cut as well. He finished as the low amateur, won the Silver Cup, and was right there in Butler Cabin sitting next to Tiger Woods as he received his fifth green jacket. Oh, and by the way, the new number one ranked amateur in the world? That would be Victor Hovland. Interestingly enough, both Victor and Devin had their coaches on the bag at Augusta, just like they did at the U.S. Amateur. Coach Alan Bratton caddied for Victor, and Coach Andrew Larkin caddied for Devin. The reason I bring that up, Victor, Devin, and Coach Alan Bratton were all previous guests on the back of the range, and soon Coach Andrew Larkin from UCLA will be joining us here at the back of the range as well. So that brings me to the next point. Make sure you are subscribed in Apple Podcasts. Don't forget, we're on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Follow us on Instagram at the Back of the Range Podcast. And as always, please, if you are enjoying this podcast, leave a review in Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you think. You know, we're always looking for feedback, interesting ideas for new guests. This podcast belongs to you just as much as it belongs to me. So, for our 70th episode, our guest this week is one of the most dominant amateurs in the state of Florida. The number of awards won and titles earned are a little bit of a mystery. Not because they didn't happen, but because there's so many, it's hard to track them all down. Our guest this week is Rick Wolf from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And here's actually one of my favorite stacks from Uncle Rick. He's a nine-time Florida State Golf Association Senior Player of the Year. Now let that sink in a little bit. You can't play senior amateur golf in Florida until you turn 55. He's won the player of the year nine times. You do the math. Rick is a legend here in Florida, plain and simple. He's played in 25 USGA championships, with most of them occurring after he turned 35 years old. He's played in British amateurs, British senior amateurs. He served on the USGA Mid-Am Committee, 
He shot his age of 67 in a Florida State mid-amateur, and he won the state mid-amateur at the age of 62. Think about that, a 62-year-old winning a tournament where 25-year-olds can enter. Oh yeah, there's just one more story. He played against Tiger Woods in match play and won. On a personal note, Rick was one of the first guys that I went to while the back of the range was in its early planning phase, so to speak. And when I asked him, so what do you think if I started a golf podcast? Well, he liked the idea, and that really helped me in the early days. So it took me a long time to get him corralled for his episode, but we got it done. Very thrilled to welcome one of the true legends of amateur golf in the state of Florida to the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. Rick, thanks for joining me. No, I'm I'm glad I finally was able to make it. <laughs> I, I've been chasing you down like you owed me money or something. I, look, I knew you tried. You wanted you told me you wanted me to be your number one, and now I'm number sixty something. That's okay. That's all right. Numbers numbers don't matter with you. Number it is it is just a number with you. So, man, you know I've been playing amateur golf for probably in South Florida or in the state of Florida for about twenty years now, and I would play county events and state events, and you know, kind of eke my way up the ladder of playing in a state amateur or state mid amateur, and you know, your name has been at the top of just about every single list. Um, you just were commenting that you have a player's resume, so to speak, whenever you send them out to invitationals, and we don't have it here, but we don't really need to hunt for your record. So just to throw out a couple numbers so that people listening can get an idea of what you've accomplished. Um, Played collegiately at Michigan State. Right. And you are three-time Florida State Amateur Player of the Year. And what is absolutely fascinating to me is you're a nine-time State Senior Amateur Player of the Year. And you can't play senior events in the state of Florida, or can't play Florida State Golf Association senior events until you turn 55. Nine times. So if you want them consecutively, that's, in my math, is about 64 uh, what is your age, sir? 69. Oh, God. Okay, so let's dial it back to a little bit of the beginning before we get into a lot of your amateur and senior amateur accomplishments, which there's tons of them. But give our listeners just a little bit of an idea. How did you get into the game of golf? When did things start for you? Tell about kind of the junior collegiate uh, experiences. I will I will let you go, sir. All right. Well, it was it was exactly 53 years ago. When my dad, who was a, he got to about a six at one time in his golf career, uh, was getting new clubs and he gave me his old clubs. And I started playing some golf when I was 13 years old. And I found a bunch of friends of mine that I had played just about every sport you can think of with. And they all had golf clubs as well. And we started playing a lot at a, at a very old par three golf course that doesn't exist anymore in Fort Lauderdale. It used to be right behind where the uh, BSO office is located at the corner of Broward Boulevard and uh, Riverland Road. It was back in that section, and we'd go out there every weekend, and then during summer, we were out there the entire summer. And within about the first year, we all decided that it wasn't that much fun just to play golf. We needed to start playing competitive golf, and it just so happened that the Broward County Junior Golf Association was running an event, if I remember correctly, it was them, at Plantation Golf Club, the old Plantation Golf Club, and they actually had a Broward County Junior that was being played. And I don't recall, actually, when they first opened that up or first started it. But when I was 15, 
I remember playing in that for the next couple of years and at the same time started playing golf with uh, at Nova High School, which is where I went. Um, I finally gave up baseball in uh, my sophomore year. And although I did play football my last year, which wasn't uh, looked upon quite well by my father, but, uh, <laughs> um, but by the time I finished up high school, I knew that I wanted to play golf in college. And uh, I was fortunate enough actually to get looked at pretty carefully by Buster Bishop from University of Florida and Dave Williams at Houston. Um, but my dad sat me down one day and he said, look, you know, this is really good. If they, if you end up with a scholarship at University of Florida or at uh, 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 University of Houston, uh, that would be really great. But you have to understand that if you don't make the team, you're not going to have a scholarship. And if that's where you decide to go to school, you're going to have to pay for it yourself. So I started um, realizing that uh, real life was a little different than I thought and uh, started talking to my counselor. He gave me the names of a bunch of schools, primarily in the Big Ten, but mostly up in the, mid uh, the Midwest. And I started applying up there and ended up at Michigan State. And actually, that's when the real competitive juices started flowing. And I started playing uh, competitively from then uh, almost nonstop until now. I did have a break there for a while, but so I've been I've been playing competitive golf since 1962. Wow. Well, and it's interesting you bring that up because I've spoken to a lot of um, amateurs, per professionals, college players, college coaches, and it sounds like the real consistent theme is go someplace if you're going to play in college, go someplace where you know you're going to be able to play. So that kind of went into your mindset. Like I want to go someplace where I have a chance to be competitive and play and get the most out of your college golf experience. So did that kind of tie in with what your decision-making was for Michigan state? Well, you know, I, I certainly was confident that I thought I could make the team and I really didn't think about the idea that, that, you know, a lot of the players are probably from the Michigan or the Midwest area and they only play uh, six to eight months a year or something like that. But actually that, that, I never really thought about the idea that I wouldn't make the team, right. but I did go up there without a scholarship. And fortunately within the first three months, I was able to persuade the coach that it would be worthwhile taking the chance. And from then on, it, there wasn't any issues about that. But back then freshmen weren't allowed to play varsity, anything, yeah, even the actually it may have been football. They may have switched football by then because this was 1967. But we could not play um, varsity golf, so we had our own matches that they had for freshmen, and that's sure. all we did our first year. Sure. And it was only my after my uh, starting my second year that we were we started playing varsity varsity golf. So you play collegiately at Michigan State. I'm going to ask you this question, then I'm going to ask it to you again later on in our discussion. Was there any um, thought at that time after Michigan State to play professionally? Actually, what happened, yes. I, um, I took a little longer than you're, not, you're supposed to take in completing school, primarily because of my first year's academics. Um, but by the time 1972 ro rolled around, I was working and and going to school to finish up there. And I grabbed one of my fraternity brothers after I graduated in 72 
and we traveled that entire summer and all I did was play in amateur golf tournaments to see how good I was. Sure. And there were a few events actually where I played pretty good. I was leading the um, Eastern Amateur after after two days and um, got beat by a fella that some of us still remember, Ben Crenshaw. And um, rings a bell. So uh, uh, after that, though, after having played for it was probably about three and a half months of playing every almost every single week with my fraternity brother as my caddy. Um, I realized that I didn't win anything the whole time. I was, I was competitive in some of the events, but I realized then that that wasn't going to get me anywhere or I wasn't at least prepared to work harder to get even better. And I decided, you know, I think I better consider doing something else. Somebody had said something about the fact that it wouldn't be a bad idea to go to law school, but that was going to take a little bit of time to get everything together. So I went to work for Sears fixing air conditioners. <laughs> okay, I actually never knew that. Yeah. I've always known you because you, you're a attorney, litigator. I don't know what. What right. would you say? So trial, I'm a trial lawyer. Trial yeah. lawyer, been doing that forever and ever. Did not know that you had a lustrous career as a air conditioner repairman for Sears. Right. Um, okay, didn't have that in my notes. No problem. So. Um, you know, I one thing I do have in your notes is that you know you have a family, you have you have you're married, you have you have boys, and you know I think anyone that plays golf tries to figure out what is that work life balance. How do I take care of my career stuff, be there for my family, but I also want to play a little bit of golf. But I I think there's about a stretch of about ten years where you were kind of getting your career established. You really didn't play much golf, did you? No, actually, let's see. It was probably when we finished up, that was the summer of 72. Um, I started my work. I wasn't really playing much at that time, even though I could have. But I was trying to get into law school, and I finally did get into law school. And I started in uh, 73. And law school is just as you have read about it or have seen it on TV where it's portrayed. Uh, so, yeah, I played very little golf for those three years, um, had a clerkship in 1975 down in Miami. And then when I graduated in 76, they offered me a job and I came back to Miami because of the great people that I had worked with during sure. that particular summer. And from 76, from the time I first started um, working f- full time till about 1980, so that's a stretch of about seven, seven to eight years at that point. I really wasn't playing much golf. I certainly wasn't playing any competitive golf. And it really, actually, it was, bef- and it was after I moved. I was five years in Miami, and then I moved back to Fort Lauderdale. And when I moved back to Fort Lauderdale, I actually saw an article about the USGA Mid-Amateur Championship that they were just starting. So it's like 82, right? 81 was the first championship. Yep. 81 was the first championship. And so that's when I decided that's a great idea. You know, I thought USGA had really done a wonderful thing to come up with this, this category of golfers that did not have to compete with the younger golfers and particularly the college golfers. Right. And so I started practicing again and uh, went and tried to qualify for the 1982 mid-amateur and somehow I made it and uh actually no I take that back it wasn't the 82 it was it was the winner of the 82 that got me to start playing again um 
and I ended up qualifying for the 1983 U.S. Mid-Amateur. And I say that what happened in 82 had, had caused me to do this. Um, when I, when I was at Michigan state, there was a fella who was, who played for Purdue and he and I went head to head for the last two years. There were a few other players definitely in that same mix as being considered to be the better players in the big 10. His name is Bill Hoffer and Bill Hoffer was a fella who really was a good player, but he had a very, very odd grip. He pretty much had a, a major motorcycle grip, hooked everything, including his wedges and uh, I read an article where he won the 1982 U.S. Mid-Amateur. That's all you needed. So <laughs> I qualified. I went to Cherry Hills, my, and I took – Susan was with me. We had been married at that point just about four years. And um, uh, we went out to Cherry Hills. I got there a little early. I went out. I was hitting balls. I was putting. And then I looked over to the driving range and I see this guy out there and he's hitting these shots. And I'm thinking, boy, that guy swings just like Bill Hoffer. But I said, that can't be Bill Hoffer. There's not a hair on his head. So I went walking over there anyway, and he turned and looked at me, and I realized that that's Bill Hoffer. And, <laughs> and he was as amazed as I was. Um, and so that's what got me going really was uh, who ended up winning the 82 U.S. Mid-Am that, that stirred me on to go back to competitive golf. That's a great story. So that is your first USGA appearance in the 83 U.S. Mid-Am. Actually not, but... Oh. But oh, I'm sorry. It, yeah. You're right. You're right because you had qualified for U.S. Amateur. In yeah, the the '69 Amateur. '69 Amateur. When when my friend Steve Melnick wins the U.S. Amateur at Oakmont, stroke play the, in that year. Right. And um, Mike Sanfilippo and I both qualified. Mike, I think, may not have been even 16 at that point, and we qualified down at uh, Golf Club of Miami or whatever that golf club is, it's right off of the expressway down there. And, um, we went up to Oakmont to play that. That was my first USGA event. I had tried to qualify for the junior and I, I never made it. Um, but so he and I go up there, we're staying with friends of his and each day as we walked out for the two practice rounds and then for the two, uh, the, the two first uh, stroke play rounds each time, the fellow that we were staying with, who was a friend of Mike's dad, said to us, don't forget, lag every single putt, no matter how short, which was great advice. Unfortunately, neither one of us played good enough to make the cut. But uh, that was that was a very interesting first uh, uh, visit with uh, major amateur golf. So 69 is your first. You then take your kind of hiatus, so to speak, to get the career going. You returned to USGA in 83. That's two. How many am I missing? What is your total of USGA appearances, would you say, right now? Uh, 25. 25 USGA yeah. championships. Wow. So you get started with your real competitive career. You mentioned your wife, Susan. So uh, this kind of brings me into this kind of a question. Like I was kind of leading into, you got your boys, have your career. Um, speak to me about how important it is if you want to be able to compete and then balance life, how important is it to have kind of the backing of family behind you to be able to do what you do? Because your schedule, I mean, when you play a full schedule of tournaments in a year, I'm assuming 15, 20 tournaments. 
Certainly, there. Yeah, there's been a number of years where there. I'm sure it was that many. Yeah. So I mean, those are 20 weekends. That's almost. We're talking almost half the weekends of the year you're out and about. So, what's the family aspect of being able to not only take care of them while you're in town, but they're supporting you so you can go out and do what you need to do? Well, you're absolutely right. There is no way that it could be done without her support primarily. And as the boys got a little older, their support as well. Uh, fortunately, every now and then I could take them with me because I did want them to in, enjoy the game and, and start playing and stuff like that. And and I won't say unfortunately, but for their both of them for their first 18 years of life, um, there wasn't a sport that they did not uh, like at all and there wasn't a sport that they didn't at least try to participate in right and they both were three sport players during their high school years and so you know yeah it was it was difficult to balance because each time I left both of the boys were still at home with mom and mom have obviously was in charge um, and there was a significant amount of support that I got from my entire family during this entire time. And in fact, it continued on and to the present day to tell sure. you the truth. So, of course. but yeah, it is, it is important. How do you achieve that balance? Well, obviously you, you've got to have the type of relationship with your whole family that they recognize that this is something that dad really wants to do. And it's a good thing for him. And maybe it's a good thing as well uh, that he's going away for a couple of days so that we're separated from him and, and we don't have <laughs> okay. to deal with him when he comes home from work and, and things like that. So it may very well be the vacation that they're looking for. Although I, they, no one ever had, they've never said that to you. Said they? that to me. No, no, no. Oh, we're so glad you're leaving dad. <laughs> <laughs> not, not once, but, uh, I'm sure every now and then it was thought, man. Um, did you ever come back to the house when you could just tell that the boys threw some sort of a party because you're out at a golf tournament and you just didn't know about? Well, I will oh. say that there were a number of times, and it wasn't nor it wasn't necessarily that we were, had been gone for for golf purposes, but certainly there were the times when our boys got into their mid-teen and even later years, and certainly during the summers when they were home from college. But the thing about it was, and it always bothered me to a certain extent too, because they really weren't very good at hiding it. Because all we had to do is flip open the the garbage cart and look in, and there it was, you know, full of bottles, full of cans and stuff. And you go, you scratch your head and you go, wow, you guys cleaned up the whole house, and then you did that. I mean, was it just, you're, are, you, are you really just telling us? Mom and Dad, we're doing these things and want you, want you to be aware, and we're and we're able to keep the place, and it and we and nothing gets damaged, and we clean up and stuff like that. So don't be upset. We're very careful. Or or <laughs> I mean, don't or they, they forgot? Don't they know that you get all the evidence, put it in a big like not that I've ever done this, but you put it in a big trash can trash bag, and then you drive to a dumpster behind some supermarket. I mean. Rookie mistakes, but no, they just wanted to. Throw. Well, we're wondering too, though, how many times they actually did it that way. Oh, you that's know, so. There could have been other times when they did it that we weren't aware. We're unpacking a whole lot of stuff. We're uh, good gosh. Um, I want to. Okay, so you mentioned you know you're 69 years old and you're shooting scores that I mean you consistently are breaking your age and and shooting uh, amazing scores. Talk to me a little bit about fitness. I know you're last year you kind of were. 
dealing with a, a pretty serious injury, but talk to me about how important or when fitness really became important for you and how it kind of entered your mind of, I really need to keep in good shape because I'm, I'm starting to get older thing. I'm not hitting the ball as far or things aren't as sharp. When did fitness really become serious for you to maintain your level of, uh, uh, level of play? I would, I would say that it was in my forties because in my forties is when I stopped playing competitive softball. I stopped playing competitive flag football and I wasn't much of a basketball player, although I'd play every now and then just to, to fill in. But I actually stopped a lot of the vigorous activities that I was doing. I was never really a gym person. I never was a lifter of weights or any, anything like that of any significance. We obviously had it at Michigan State. In fact, <laughs> in fact, one of the guys that, uh, that helped us one, one winner – uh, that actually was required to help us was Steve Garvey, who played for the Dodgers. Of course. And um, but but and I had to lift weights and do things. They wanted us to do certain regimens and so forth, and that was fine. But I never really continued it. And but once I stopped playing these other sports, so that there were now occasions where I really wasn't doing much of anything, I realized that maybe we better start figuring out something. And I don't really remember for sure, but I I I'm. I believe sometime in the early 40s, I started to do yoga, and I actually started doing yoga for a considerable period of time. Um, but then that faded away, and then I started working out regularly with a trainer, and then I joined a gym. And, and But it was really more spotty than anything until I got into my early 50s. And after that, I started doing it more regularly. I really didn't do it much on my own. I did have a trainer, and um, it, it, I think it really made a difference. Since then, so for the last 10 to 14 years, it's been off and on, although I do the fellow I'm seeing now that I go to see twice a week, I've actually seen him over that 15 years off and on. And, um, and still doing a little yoga, although it's been now probably six or seven years where I've done it regularly, which is unfortunate. Um, but it's, it's made a big difference. And it certainly in this last year, I've recognized that, uh, with part of my body breaking down, that there are things that I better start doing much more regularly. And I am, and it's helping finally. I mean, I was very fortunate that I got through my situation last year, with only being out for about three and a half to, f to four uh, months. But it, it actually affected me up until probably February of this year. I finally feel now I'm at a point where um, my body is now, it feels strong enough, and I think I'm probably gotten to about 95%. But for a while, it was pretty limited. Well, I just remember, you know, just you being an absolute rock in senior amateur, uh, you know, golf for the last, you know, basically almost 15 years now, we're looking at 10 to 15 years. And last year we had a tournament at Jacaranda <laughs> in plantation. And, you know, for people that don't know Rick Wolf, you know, this is the guy that is just, you know, he's whipping up on mid ams and he's just beating the hell out of everyone. And I see you in a golf cart, just coming out to see the boys and you're not playing and you get out of a golf cart and, I mean, you were just hobbling around with like a, a 
uh, I don't know if you had a cane with you or whatever. My walker you had with a me. walker, yeah. and I was like Rick Wolf with a walker. <laughs> I mean, I just was I was absolutely shocked. Um, so we're talking about so you're you're back to ninety five percent, and the thing I really find interesting is you know you're competing against your fellow seniors, but you're also competing against mid ams and amateurs. Like when you go play into a state am or you go play in others these other invitationals. Do you take a different approach based on age ranges that you're playing against or perhaps golf courses that you're playing? How do you get yourself prepared to play against, you know, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds? The 30-year-olds and actually some of the some of the 40-year-olds certainly would be in the events where we're playing maybe not necessarily from the back tees but certainly playing a a decently long golf course. And it is becoming harder and harder. And do I do anything, though, in preparation for it? No. I mean, actually, I'm not much of a practice person, and I haven't been for over 40 years. Um, but I do have a definite, definite, different thought process when I'm playing in those events, knowing full well that now I'm going to be hitting four and five irons and things like that into the greens rather than hitting wedges. But, you know, I, I actually don't look at it any differently except now as we're making decisions to play maybe in a super senior event or something like that, I realize I'm going to be playing a golf course that's probably much less than 6,500 yards. And right now I still don't particularly care for doing that. Right. But um, I'm realizing that to stay competitive, maybe I better start dropping back a little. Well, it's going to be actually very interesting. You know, today, you know, we're here in, uh, we're here just outside of Tampa recording this episode. We just played a senior mid-am four ball, uh, uh, tournament here. And I think the mid-ams were at about 6,700. I think the seniors are about 64, 65. I mean, that's great for you because you hit it long, but I would imagine there's certain holes where you really can't hit driver. And when you go to super seniors can be even worse. Yeah, if I yeah, I've, I've played now in the last four years. I've played in either three or four super senior events. I have continued to play in senior events when they're available. Um, I haven't really uh, signed up to play in any strictly super senior event. Um, but you know that probably will come. But by then, I'm you know I'm going to be turning seventy this year. And they've got now legends divisions for 70 and over. I'm, I don't know if I'm going to play in those for a while. You're going to destroy those guys. You're just gonna... <laughs> because of the, well, just, yeah. I mean, the thing is though, that again, that, that becomes short game and, and, uh, I, I'm not much of a, I don't practice. Uh, and I really never have for a long, long time. Okay. So that's, that's wild because a lot of listeners here that, you know, I've had listeners reach out to me in this podcast saying, I want to know, like you got the five handicap guy that wants to know what can I do to get myself and get my game ready to go qualify for my state amateur, my state open, a U.S. mid-am, something like that. And they want the tips and tricks or things that they can do to get themselves ready. You're not a practicer. So you're playing, are you doing different kind of things when you're playing on the course? I mean, are you practicing short game? Like what are you doing other than just going out and playing? If, if I were to decide, and, and certainly those times have come in the last 20 years, uh, to do much of anything, it's usually chipping and putting. I, I really have, I think I've been able to develop a golf swing that I really don't need to do a whole lot of uh, hitting balls and things like that. But certainly when it comes to short game, 
It's a matter of feel. It's a matter of touch. It's a matter of all kinds of things that really does increase the more you do it. Sure. And as long as you've got the right types of, of, of uh, ways of, of hitting certain uh, practice shots or, or doing certain practice things or certain, certain types of drills, all of which you've figured out work good for you to become a sharper chipper, a better blaster, a better putter, a better whatever it is from a short game. That's where I generally will spend time if I'm not playing on the golf course. My recommendation to players of fours and fives that want to get better is to just stay on the putting green, go into the into the bunker and hit your chip shots and make your short game as good as you possibly can make it um, and then just play. That's okay. that's my that's always been my philosophy. And, you know, like I said, I really don't do much in the way of practicing. I'll I'll putt and chip and hit balls and stuff like that simply to get loose for a round. Got it. Um, and frankly, I pretty much know my golf swing, and I know when I start hitting it a certain way exactly why I'm doing that. So usually I can fix it right during the round, and if not then, usually I, it's easy to fix uh, after. So your advice is kind of learn your swing, own your swing. You can all, Everyone can always work on their short game and get that tuned up. Would you say that you not being a practicer maybe has prevented other injuries in your career, like the wrist thing or back thing? I mean, maybe that is a key to your longevity where you just, you're not a range rat beating the hell out of range balls all the time. I, you know, that's certainly one of the things that I've always wondered about because of the fact that I've got friends that do hit balls left and right. They're out there in the morning. They're out there in the afternoon. They're doing this every day. Somehow they fit it into their work. And I do wonder whether or not, had I been doing something like that, would I even be able to be playing golf now? I don't. I don't actually sure. worry about it. But that's that's been my habit. It's not like all of a sudden I've decided now I'm not going to hit balls because I'm worried about my body falling apart. I haven't been doing it for forty years. <laughs> sure. So, <laughs> so um, let's tell a couple good stories. You have been around the game for so long that I I know you have tons of them. So. We've discussed a few of these, but I'm going to segue into them and tee you up pretty well. You've probably seen it all with any type of player that you've faced, whether they have maybe a little gamesmanship or maybe some uh, some tactics. I'm sure you've seen that someone lose their temper on the golf course. I'm sure you've seen, seen it all, but you, you want it. I know we want to share a story that happened up at Dartmouth College, which I think is just hysterical. So... Share this story about perhaps a little gamesmanship that not you were a part of, but you were on the fringe of being a part of. <laughs> uh, I went to I went to law school. I went to Washington and Lee Law School, and one of the one of the fellows I met early on there, who was two years ahead of me in school, um, his name is Brad Griffin. He's from he's from Rutland, Vermont. That's where he was born and raised. And uh, after we had graduated from school, he trying to get me up to play in this particular event that they had every year in August at Rutland Country Club. And finally in 81, I made it up. And from the, for the next 18 years, I think I went up almost every single year and we had pretty good success and it was always fun. And sometimes I would go up a little early cause we'd go play some of the other golf courses in Vermont. And uh, they had an event that was scheduled, I think almost every year, the either the week, be, I'm pretty sure it was the week before um, this particular event that we played at Rutland Country Club, and it was held at Dartmouth Golf Club. And I forget the name of the event. Um, 
But anyway, and Brad and Brad would tell me, why don't you come up a week early? We'll go play there. So we played there a couple of times. And one year, uh, it's a very interesting golf course too, somewhat of a mountain up and down type of golf course, fun to play, easy to score on. So that it was a lot of fun. It was a two-man best ball. And you would play a qualifying round, and then you'd get, once you got into that, you'd then go and, and play your uh, match match play uh, events starting the next day. And um, uh, they did not have an area to practice, so we Brad knew this location, and that's where a lot of the guys would go to hit balls. So we're out there getting ready for our first match that day. We're hitting balls, and the guys that were playing then drive up, and they drive up, and they happen to. Uh, decide to hit balls just to the right of us, maybe 40 yards away or something like that. And and Brad turns and looks at me, points it over at them. And he says, here, watch this. And he gets up there and he starts hitting uh, purposeful shanks. Which is and, not easy. No, it's not. But he's good at it. <laughs> and uh, and he starts hitting a shank. And then he, he you know, makes a movement like, Oh, I can't believe I did that type of thing. And he puts another ball down and he make and he's and he's making sure that they are going right in front of these guys. So they're definitely seeing them. And after about three or four of them, they pick up their balls and leave. <laughs> we then we then drive over to the golf course. We're getting ready for our match, and Brad starts talking to him, and I can see that. You know, it, it's he's saying, you know, really, I'm having a tough time today. I really can't believe I was hitting the shots like that and stuff. And, but by the time we we got out onto the golf course, you could tell that he had definitely messed up their thinking. And un, unfortunately for them, we took him down pretty easily. But <laughs> but that's not Brad. He's sort of a master at things like that, and and he's done it since as well. So, oh, oh, this oh, yeah. is a repeat, oh, he's a repeat offender. It, it can happen. Yes, oh, that's it can. brilliant. Yes, yes. Wow. So. <laughs> um, You've played, you know, you've played USGA events, you've played, uh, you've played events uh, across the pond. As anyone can imagine, when you're traveling abroad, things kind of can go haywire, whether it's with your travel or with, you know, renting a car, you're driving on the opposite side of the road, of course. Uh, Tell me about the 2017 British Senior Amateur at Sunningdale. That year... um... I was looking forward to it too, because I had played Sunningdale before John Baldwin, who is a very, very good senior golfer who's, who had won the British senior before and a friend of mine, he lives in, in West Palm, uh, part of the year and in London, another part of the year. Um, and, uh, he had invited me to play one year when we went over a little early when we were playing at Walton Heath for the tournament. And I got a chance to see the golf courses, which are really phenomenal ones. So we were really looking forward to this tournament. And I got over, um, a couple days early and I was staying pretty close to the, um, to the, uh, golf course. Uh, but Pat talent was coming in to town. He was coming in a, a day after me with his wife, and um, I'm trying to remember, he had someone else with him, and, and he had his wife as well, and he was coming in on a Sunday, and I had been in touch with him, and I told him that I they wanted to go to um, the King and Queen's uh, place there, which wasn't very far from where we were staying, um, King of England, Queen of England, and so forth, and they wanted to go visit the, the castle and so forth. And I said, well, that was one of the things I was thinking about. Why don't I come and pick you guys up? 
and I'll take you over that, that make it really easy. So <clears throat> I drove over, picked them up. It was about 20 minutes from where we were headed and we were unpacking things and moving things around and so forth. And I hopped in the car and I realized I didn't have a good idea of exactly where my phone was. And without a phone over there, you're really in trouble. Sure. Um, but I thought, oh, it's, it's, I'm sure it's in the car here. No big deal. So we took off. I drove. It took about 20, 25 minutes. We were driving through some areas where they were doing heavy construction. We pulled into the city um, where the castle was located and so forth. And we're driving around. We're not finding a parking place. And then we see a parking garage. So I pulled down into the parking garage and I realized, and as they told us, we don't have any spots here. But I see some guys over in the corner of the garage. They're washing some cars. I thought, well, maybe what we can do is we'll just take our car over there. We're not going to be able to find a parking place, but if we can get them to take the car and tell them we'll pay them for a wash, then at least we got a place to store the car. Sure. So they say, sure. Oh, yeah, no problem. And I forget exactly how much it was, was going to be, but it was worth it. So we pulled the car in, and I, and I said, all right, now i gotta, I got to find my phone. And so we're, again, going through the entire car. We can't find it anywhere, and I'm really frustrated. And I look up on the top of the car, and there on the on the rail, it was a little rail on the top of the car, right on top there, my phone is laying right on the top the of the of the, the roof of the car. We had driven close to 25 miles going through all these bumps and stuff like that. And somehow my cell phone ends up staying on the top of the car that whole way and Thank goodness. Oh, God. Because that's a nightmare in and of itself. Forget yeah, about not, the fact. not quite as bad as the previous nightmare that we had, though. My Oh, yeah, of course. I, I think it was, trying to remember, we went over twice. We went over in 1989 and we went over in 1990 uh, to play in the British Amateur. And uh, the first year that we went over, that yeah, that I went over with Brad, in fact, my friend who can shank at... At will. At, at will. Um, he played in the British Amateur with me. We were at Burkdale. And then we took off and met uh, six of our friends who were coming into Glasgow. And then we went through uh, Scotland. And we went all the way through Scotland. We went up to um, uh, where Donald Ross is from up there. I don't forget the name of the golf course right now. But up at the top of, of uh, Scotland. And then came all the way around. And we're finishing up our trip at um, Troon. And unfortunately, we weren't able to play Troon because we didn't realize, but they were playing the British Open the next week or in two weeks at least, and they had the golf course closed. We decided we were going to go into the Marine Hotel, have a little uh, dinner, and the next morning we were flying over to Ireland. And unfortunately, somebody broke into our cars, stole almost all of our luggage, including a number of passports and golf clubs. So now we've got eight guys. Some of the golf clubs didn't get stolen. Some of the guys wanted to go to Ireland no matter what. And I was not one of those. And so there were four of us then that had to somehow get out of Scotland and get back to the United States. And fortunately, this was 1989, right? And it didn't the the, the uh, 
security wasn't nearly as tight. We, I don't know if we'd ever get, have been able to get out of there uh, without having any ID and passports and so forth. But fortunately as well, with, with my wife working for Delta, for Dave Johnston, who was one of Brad Griffin's roommates in law school, whose wife also worked for Delta, and we had a Delta pilot with us. So we had three people that had some relations with Delta. So Delta somehow got us through customs without anybody having any ID at all. So we were able to get home, uh, but it was looking pretty bad there for a while. But uh, that was by far the worst problem, fortunately, that we'd ever have (laughs) over there. But you've had, but you've also had really great experiences over there. I mean, you mentioned your wife, Susan, she's caddied for you in the British senior amateur. Uh, How'd you get her signed up for that? Well, it wasn't very hard to get her to go with me over there. Sure. Get her on the plane. I totally get that. That's not going to be, that wasn't, that wasn't definitely the difficult part. And I'm trying to remember the first one, in fact, the first British senior that I played in is where Ian Poulter is the is the head pro. Okay, so this is a real famous story about Poulter, how he was basically a four handicap, wanted to get into the golf business. <laughs> He's an assistant pro, selling sweaters, gripping clubs, giving lessons to, and, and so that club is where you played your first British senior. British senior amateur. Okay. Hard as a rock, big time dog legs, oh. did not suit my game. And so that was one of the two times that I didn't make the cut at the British Senior Amateur. Okay. But during that visit, this is another one that I had just thought of, too. Hey. During that visit, I met Norm Swenson. And unfortunately, Norm passed away, oh, it's probably now almost five years or more. In fact, Mr. Hammer was another good friend of Norm Swenson. And anyway, Norm and I are playing, and he says, well, you know, we need to get dinner tonight. This is before the tournament had started. He says, we're staying over in this this area that's just above a pub. Why don't you come over? The food's very good and so forth. Bring your wife, obviously. So anyway, I go over. Everybody gets introduced, and my wife starts talking to Norm Swenson's wife. And within about 25 minutes, they realize they both went to the same college, and they were both in the same sorority, but for some unknown reason, and they were there at the same time, they never met each other. Really? In the same sorority, yes. But at University of Maryland, that's where Norman's uh, wife had gone to school. And um, so anyway, that was a very interesting coincidence. It wasn't uh, my best experience over there because of the fact that uh, we missed the cut, but Sue wanted to be out on the golf course. So she volunteered to caddy. And from that moment on, she decided for whatever reason, although it was a little iffy when we were um, at at the tournament before Sunningdale over on the East Coast, but she had caddied for me then for 11 British seniors. And I think she really enjoyed it. The most interesting one, which I'm sure she didn't particularly enjoy, but we were playing on the East Coast of England. And this was the year after I ran into one of my teammates from Michigan State who I had not seen in 34 years. And he was a Canadian from Quebec. 
who joined the team my first year, although he was 19 years old, um, and why that I don't know. But anyway, um, his name is Graham Cook, who is now a very, very well-known golf course architect in Canada. He, still, he lives in Quebec. He's won something like 10 uh, Canadian men amateurs and six Canadian seniors, and obviously has played in the Canadian Open a number of times because of that kind of success. I haven't seen him in so long, and he is at the Nairn tournament the year before that uh, end of this one that I was going to tell you about, and he gets into a playoff against the Irish Walker Cupper, uh, what's his first name? His last name is Pierce, and he loses. But I see him, and this is, like I say, the first time I've seen him in I don't know how many years, and he, and he married the, the sister of our, was our captain our, when we were juniors um, at, at uh, Michigan State, Lynn Jansen's uh, sister, and, and he married. So that was a great reunion. We hoped we'd see each other again, and the next year he comes over to play in the British Senior, and we end up getting paired together the last round of the event and we were the last group because he was leading and I was in second place. Wow. And when the tournament was over, Paul Simpson passed both of us up. Oh. And and so he finished second, I finished fourth, and Paul won the tournament. So that was that was that was a really neat uh, Re- uh reunion, basically. Co- yes, it was. Yeah. It was it was a lot of fun. Yeah. And that that it has always been fun going over there. I've we've had great time, but Sue just has absolutely loved it. But what I was going to tell you about, during that last day, we get to the fourth hole. It's a par five. We're about halfway down, and all of a sudden, you can tell the weather is coming. I knew it was coming. I knew that. The weather is coming, and we're both out there. We do have two umbrellas. We do have two rain suits. And we got all our gear on. It starts to rain. It's blowing we're walking down the fairway and Sue turns and looks at me and she says, when are we going in? And I, and I looked at her and I said, unfortunately, I'm not sure that they've ever had lightning here, but I know that they haven't had lightning in over a hundred years. So the likelihood of us being told to go in is not very good. So for the next couple of holes until we got to number seven, it was brutal. But we got through, we pardoned all, and we got to number eight. I made a quad and knocked myself out of the tournament. <laughs> but, that it, yeah, she has, I think she's really enjoyed it. And we've obviously had great opportunities to visit other places and stuff. Sure. We've traveled with, uh, with the Simpsons a, a number of times and stayed with them. And uh, we traveled with the, the Lutzes as well, so it's it's been a lot, and the talents too. Yeah. and it's been it's been great fun. Yeah, that's uh, that's awesome. <laughs> uh, if anyone else has the the idea of of trying to recruit their their spouse to caddy for them in a tournament, because you you can't blame stuff on the caddy, because no. yeah, because that's that's also your wife. Yeah, you got to kind of go tread lightly when you have that happening. Right. Wow. So you, you've you've played on these events, you've had tremendous success. What is the one tournament that you failed to win? That I mean, obviously, you know, you're not playing the USAM. Um, I don't know if you're going to try and qualify for the US Mid this year. But what is one tournament that is still out there that you still are chasing that you still still want to want to check off on your list? 
Well, you know, I'm not sure that that's realistic anymore, but I really thought as I qualified for the U.S. Senior Amateur that at some point in time I would at least get close. And I got I got to the third round uh, one year, and Paul Simpson was not long after I had first met him. He he beat me, um, and um, that that was that's one that I believe that I had a good opportunity to to win and never really never really got to the point where it, it should have happened. And uh, and now I, I'm not sure that there's going to be an opportunity there. Sure. Um, and other than that, uh, the mid am, I qualified for a bunch of mid ams had some good opportunities as well, but that's really, I don't think realistic. Well, one of the most realistic and one of the most impressive things I think I've ever seen is I believe it was the, let's see. So this was the 2012, State Mid-Am at Johns Island in Vero Beach. Uh, this is, so I, I remember playing in this. I was able to get into that after qualifying for my my one USGA championship. But this was, uh, you know, two rounds of stroke play. And then the cut is at 64 players. 64-32. They get 32. 32. You win this. um at the age of 62, you had to be 25 to play in the tournament. You win it at the age of 62. You shoot 67, I believe, which was your age at the time. No, it wasn't that your was age. a different. That, that was, was a different, different mid-am. That's yeah. right. That's right. Sorry, I get the same those, golf course. Same golf. That's right. Yeah. So, but but you win this at 62. Um, the reason I bring this up is, what are some of the things in your game that you see some of these mid-ams and even some of these younger players, amateurs, that lack? Some of the things that you 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 can recognize, yes, they maybe they hit it thirty yards past me, uh, but what are the things that you think that you have that some of these younger players don't that they kind of need to learn? That's that's a good question and one that I probably will have some trouble in answering. I think that um, because the thing is, in watching a lot of them, uh, they all seem to be pretty good putters. They all seem to be pretty good chippers. Nothing spectacular, although every now and then you certainly find that person that it, that is at one of those, uh, at one of those things. But um, you know, it's it's more I think is 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 ball control, and 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 controlling distance. I I think that part of what is lost by a number of the good players um, is that ability. They hit. They can hit it a mile, which is partially i think technology driven uh, in regards to equipment and also too i think um you know frank stranahan was somebody on the on the tour that was the only guy that had ever lifted any weights for years back in the 40s and 50s and so forth everybody said you can't do that that's going to tighten up your body you can't play golf and we've all seen that within the certainly within the last 10 years and really more in the last 20 years because in part because of Tiger, that's no longer the case. So we've got stronger, better technology, better equipment, better golf balls and everything. So the ball is going a lot farther. And that's the, that's the area that I think that I see in a really good player that that seems to be their main deficiency is their inability to really control the, the distance of the golf ball with their iron play more than anything else. 
And, you know, what can you do other than to, I guess, to practice? And they're all sitting there with their track men and figuring out how far they're going to be hitting that day with a five iron in their hand and a seven iron in their hand. And it's it's tough to argue with, to tell you yeah. the truth. As long as they continue to work at that, I think they're going to end up being a lot better. But Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned, I, I said earlier in the episode that I was going to ask you this question again. Uh, you, you didn't turn pro coming out of college, but uh, I would imagine coming into to the age of 50 or 49, you know, when that champions tour senior tour obviously is, is an option, you know, you've had this great success in your forties playing in multiple USGA championships. Did you ever think about taking a run at the champions tour? I actually did. Um, I talked to a lot of people that were, had been thinking about it and, and obviously a number of them that had done it and they hadn't yet decided that it, it would be okay to try and qualify and not lose your amateur status. Unfortunately, you had to opt. Right. And, um, so it was, it was going to be a serious decision. I, I had a good practice at the time. My, my kids were probably, I'm trying to think of exactly when that was, uh, they were both probably one finishing up high school, the other in college. My practice was going well. Everything was going well. Sue was working for Delta and keeping busy and doing what she wanted to do and so forth. So it, things couldn't have been any better for me as far as my life was concerned. And sure. I started thinking about something that would change everything completely. Um, and then I got lucky. After talking with a number of people and so forth, I qualified for the 99 uh, Mid-Am, which happened to be back in old St. Louis, where the first one had been won. And it just so happened that one of the fellows that I had met originally when I got on the USGA Mid-Amateur Committee and uh, was on it for 26 years um, was Jim Holtgrieve. Jim had been on the committee. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, Jim might have been one of the first ones on the committee but he also was the first one to win the uh, u.s mid-am he won it in 81 at bell reeve there in st louis so they're coming back to st louis but not at bell reeve we were playing at a at a different golf course at that time and jim had been on the committee almost from the beginning but now he's playing on the champions tour but they invited him to come back they're in st louis it'd be a great idea bring the guy who won the first event also a member of the committee, and he and he was invited to come and speak to the uh, to the players. Like they they had a speaker every year at the event. Well, Jim came to the to the greens or to the uh, golf committee uh, meeting, the mid am committee meeting, um, because he was a member and just to say hello and so forth. And that gave me the opportunity to pull him aside and say, "Look, Jim, if you got a few minutes, I'd like to talk to you about a couple things." And we had an opportunity before the dinner started to get together. And I told him I was seriously considering the possibility of uh, getting on to the champion tour. And I was interested in his, ex his experience so far. He'd been on a tour, I think by then at least a couple of years, he seemed to be doing pretty well. He certainly was making some money and stuff. So it seemed like a, a great idea at the time. He and I talked for about 30 minutes. And after he, uh, told me about his experiences throughout and it wasn't all terrible but there were some instances that he talked about and he basically said to me that he really thought 
that it probably wasn't going to be a great idea for me to do that. And frankly, it probably wouldn't have taken even all of that to convince me to not do it. But after talking to Jim, it really was a fairly simple decision to make, frankly, and I never thought about it again. The way he described it to me was this. And, and frankly, as things have gone on since then, I don't think anybody really sees anything different. And that is very simply that if you didn't make, if you didn't play the regular tour for a number of years, um, it really wasn't a very sociable, pleasant experience for someone to try and play the champions tour um, because of the fact that you, you really weren't welcome. Kind of like you didn't pay your dues on the PGA tour. This is more as a thing for guys that play. Yeah, it was, it was, it was tough. And, and, and it really doesn't take much to look and see uh, the, the non PGA tour players who are trying to get on the tour. It has become much more difficult over the last 15 years to even qualify and I think the idea was that this really is more designed to enable uh, those that had played on the tour and had reasonable success. Because even if you played on the tour, unless you really did fairly well, uh, it's, it's not an automatic exemption. You've right. got to try and qualify. Um, but they felt that this really was more designed for a, a mulligan, if you will, for the players that had played on the tour who wanted to continue to play after they turned 50. Sure. Well, then also, I guess I look at it too, is not to say that it should make it an uncomfortable or a not as enjoyable experience, but if you're not a recognizable name and they're trying to sell tickets and get people to come out, Mm -hmm. they want as many big names and recognizable names as possible. So I guess I kind of understand that, that too. Um, we saved this story for last. Anytime we can talk about Tiger Woods <laughs> and actually bring a story to the listeners, it's it's always fun. Normally, it's a story of I know a guy that knew a guy that played with Tiger Woods or we spoke with Casey Martin who played with him at Stanford. We've spoken with Alan Bratton who played against him. Uh, uh, he was with Oklahoma State and played against him in college. So we have... Kind of the fringes, but I'm sitting across from a guy that played against Tiger Woods. Tell me about, what was this, the 92 Dixie Amateur you played against Tiger Woods. What can you tell me about that experience? Yeah, back then, 1992, we were playing a Dixie Amateur, which is one of the long-standing good amateur events it started i believe back in the 40s primarily it was down in in miami they played at crandon park uh, for a number of years and country club of uh of miami um but it got moved up and it was in, in bonaventure uh which is out just outside of the uh of uh, the area um in west fort lauderdale west actually more west broward county and in those years the tournament was set up for a stroke play qualifier and then go into match play with 16 players and um in 92 i and and also it was right before christmas uh the the semifinals and finals were scheduled for christmas eve day wow and um i won my uh second third to last match the day before and I was paired to play Tiger 
the morning of Christmas Eve day, 92. And um, we had a number of, of friends of mine come out and watch because we were all very much aware of Tiger Woods for a lot of reasons. Number one, of course, his success already. He had won, I believe it was one USGA junior at that time. It might have been two. I'm not quite sure. But more importantly... He had won the 91, 92 was his second, 93 was his third, and then he went four, five, and six. Right. Yes, so he was, was, you're absolutely right. So he had one U.S. junior under his belt. But more importantly, and I say we, because I was on the executive committee for the Honda Classic at that time. It was being played at Weston Hills that year, or the coming year, 93. And, um... We had just given him an invitation to play in the Honda Classic, and it was it was actually stimulated by the fact that that year earlier he had been invited to play at Riviera, and so we thought it would be a great idea, and it was a great idea, and we decided to do it. We invited him, and he had accepted by the time the the uh, Dixie Amateur was coming around, and so anyway, I've got Tiger in the morning of Christmas Eve day. Uh, and I've got my good friend uh, Jim O'Connor, who is the actually the, he was the the chairman of the board of the uh, of the of the tournament at the time. He was he was there. He had there was a number of people, good friends of ours, that had come to watch, including my wife. And um, and she, prior to the match starting, was wise enough to realize that this kid was going somewhere so she got him to sign about six visors we i think we still have one left we gave five of them away to charities who of course um, got bids and so forth and sold them but uh, so anyway that was that's how it all started and um just a, a a few items during the match um on the fourth hole and this was when i was i was playing in, I mentioned in in 1989, I had my club stolen, and when we were over in Scotland and so forth. Well, my and I had a persimmon-headed driver. I hadn't yet played any uh, steel-headed um, uh, woods, and my buddy Brad Griffin gave me my first um, steel-headed uh, club, and it was a three-wood, a, a, a burner. Um, well. That was the club I used as my driver for five years. Yep. So I'm playing Tiger. I've got my, quote, driver, which is my three-wood there. In, this is a tailor-made burner, like spoon. Right. Little, yeah. Yep, but 13 degrees. 13 degrees. 13 yeah. degrees. I still have it. And um, I, <laughs> I'm one down. We're coming into number four. Tiger hits his drive down there. I hit my burner down there. He walks up, he walks past his golf ball uh, and is walking up to the other ball. It's about 15 yards past it. And I walk up to the ball. I go, Tiger, come on back. Motion him back. He hits his shot up on the green. I hit mine up on the green. We get up on the fifth hole, which is a par three. He turns and looks at me. He says, you've been hitting this the whole time? I said, yeah. He didn't say anything beyond that. Well, anyway, he hooks it out of bounds on eight. We come to nine. Um, I, I chip it up, hit the pin, and I'm now two up after nine. We're driving down number 11. We had, we had halved uh, 10, which was, I believe, a par five. 
and we're coming down number 11 and we're talking about a variety of things. And, and he mentions to me uh, about his exemption into the Honda Classic. And, he, and he, he looks at me and he says, you know, they really should give you an exemption. I thought, well, that's, you know, kind of nice of him to say. But anyway, we come and he's down. About, and he's like 16? 16. He's, yeah. yeah, he's going to turn 17 on December 30th. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. So a week, a week later, he's going to turn 17. And um, so we start actually start talking about a bunch of things. And, I mean, he's, he's playing good. He, he's hooking the ball. Uh, which I think was his game at the time. I, he changed that obviously since then, but um, um, he's he's playing pretty good. But I I've made a couple putts and I've got him two down, and we're talking about some things as we're driving down. And and in the in the in the um, in the Dixie in those days, they would put competitors together when they had the match play. They only gave us one cart, so we're riding with each other. We're not walking. We're riding, and so we're stuck riding next to each other in the cart and um we've got a mat did we have no we didn't have a match in front of us either we were the only ones on the golf course because the the other semifinal match got got canceled because the fellow who had gotten in um who had a family had made arrangements which apparently were non-refundable he called at seven o'clock in the morning to advise everybody that he wasn't going to be making his match so he ended up um, forfeiting his match. The fellow who was going to be playing the winner of our match followed us for nine holes, but then he decided he better go hit balls and stuff and get ready. There's no telling when the match may end and so forth. So anyway, all of that's going on. We're driving down, I think, number 12 by then. And I mentioned to him um, in passing, I said, you know, I saw the article in, in Golf Week, which in which it stated that you were actually seriously considering going to UNLV. And I asked him about that. And he says, no, my dad wanted me to, you know, say something about that. And we certainly didn't want to indicate where, where we were going or anything like that. So I said, yeah, we're, we still have them in consideration. But, you know, I, he says, I'm really, I don't think I'm really thinking about going there. And I said, well, you know, my dad went to Stanford and that's a really great academic school, as I'm sure you know. And he says, that's, he told me, he said, you know, that's probably where I'm going to end up. Right. And I said, well, that's, that's, that's great. I said, what do you think? What do you think you might study while you're there? Do you have any idea? He says, oh yeah, I've got a very good idea of what I'm going to study. I said, well, what's that? He says, accounting, accounting. Really? Why accounting? He says, I want to be able to know when my advisors are screwing me. So that's an, anyway, that's as it awesome. turns out, I got, I got fortunate and, and he got, I got him three down and we come to the, I think it was the 15th hole, which has got water on the left. He gets up and, and he hooks it into the water. He then goes and drops and he hooks that in the water. He turns around, shakes my hand. And that was the end of our match. And his dad walked with us the whole time, uh, who was an interesting guy. And I, but I had one more opportunity to meet and talk with and play with Tiger. And his dad, of course, was always traveling with him. I got invited as a result of winning the, uh, the Dixie. I got invited to play in the Northeast Amateur, which I was real excited about because I'd heard so many good things about it. And it, as it, things turn out, we got paired and um, we played the first day together. And then the next day I found out that he had withdrawn. And as it turns out, apparently he had mononucleosis or something and stayed in the hotel for a couple days. And when the tournament was over, I'm going back to the airport. I ran into him and his dad 
And um, that reminds me of, of when we were sitting, <laughs> we were sitting at the, at the, uh, uh, at the club for the dinner the night before the event started. Right. And I was sitting with Tiger and his dad and his dad was directly to my left and Tiger was to the left of his, of his dad. And uh, they had a bunch of people that were speaking. They had uh, Billy Andrade and um, Brad Faxon and they talked about their, their charitable um, uh, events that they had in Rhode Island that they um, had started up, uh, I believe a couple of years before that they were talking about that. So that was one of our speakers. And then Bobby Rotella came on sure. to speak and I knew Bobby because, um, he was from Rutland, Vermont and getting back to Brad Griffin, he seems to be fitting in, in a lot of these stories. Perfect. Um, that's when I went up to play in the tournament, Bobby would always do a Wednesday night. The tournament would start on Wednesday. We'd be doing qualifying, and then the and then the match play two man best ball would start the next day. And um, and Bobby was up every year playing, and every year everybody wanted to hear what was going on in in his business, and particularly wanted to hear about his new clients and everything. But he always would talk about the things that he wrote about, and you know what you're supposed to do in order to keep your your mind steady during golf and so forth. And we had all heard this a, a number of times. Well, anyway, here comes Bobby. Bobby's introduced at the Northeast Amateur. He's going to be one of the speakers and he comes up and he, and he, instead of starting out with what I had heard many times before. And in fact, I even commented to uh, tiger's dad. I said, well, I've heard this a uh, hundred times. And he gets up and he says, you know, instead of talking about what I write about and so forth, I think let I figured I'll tell you a few stories about Ben Hogan. Well, Bobby starts talking and it's, it's really, it's not really connecting. I, I, I wasn't, I was trying to figure out why one story connected with the other and stuff like that. And Bobby had been talking about five, six, seven minutes. And all of a sudden Earl is, is elbowing me in, in the ribs. And I turned to Earl and Earl looked at me and says, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> So anyway, I, that was the other guy, I guess, in the room that wasn't quite sure, and, sure. And of what Bobby was trying to get. Uh, and I've never told Bobby that story, so <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. We'll see how far this is distributed. I'm sure we'll get it over to Mr. Rotella. He'll, he'll hear that story. Um, all right, let me ask you about one of the best matches you've ever played. So as, uh, you know, Florida Cup is very, very important to me. Uh, I was uh, very fortunate. Actually, both of us were chosen to be the captain last year for the South team. You had to pull out due to injury, but it was a really big thrill for me, really big highlight. I've been able to play in, in five Florida Cup matches. I think you've played in 11, 12, something like that. All of them that, All of them that I was able to play in. Right. So you've yeah. not missed a Florida Cup based on qualification. You missed right. last year's due to injury, but still obviously a, 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 a you know prolific Florida Cupper. Um, it's a great event. It is Ryder Cup format, North Florida against South Florida. There have been many matches there. I, I reached out to, to Jim Demick. Um, to, to the executive director of the FSJ who was, who was on our podcast uh, earlier. And I said, you know, I'm going to talk to, I'm going to talk to Rick Wolf. You got a good Rick Wolf story. And he says, you got to ask him about one of the best matches he's ever seen. And this is a guy that's been around USGA qualifiers, US open sectional qualifiers, every state term you can think of for the last 20 some odd years. 
Talk to me about this match that you had at Laurel Oak about 20 years ago, which I have some of the details. None of them really seem believable, but you were there. You were in the match. Talk to me about this match. This kind of gives our listeners an idea of your skill and also the skill of amateur golfers in the state of Florida. Well, it was Joe Alfieri and Doug LaCrosse against Mark Lietzo and myself. Mark's a lefty. And Mark is and was a very, very talented golfer. We were playing Laurel Oak. I forget which of the two courses we were playing. Um, And we were the last match uh, that went off. And everybody was playing as good as I'd ever seen any of them play. And as a result, and I don't remember the exact number under par. And this is four ball or, or alternate shot? This is four ball. Okay. This is four ball. And um, when we came to 16, which was a par five, if I remember correctly, they had us one down, and I believe that they were nine under and we were eight under at that point. So that was after 15 holes. Both teams birdied 16 and I don't remember, somebody knocked it on in two and two putted, and it may have been Mark. It may have been Mark. I don't recall now. But um, uh, So anyway, we come to 17. 17 was about 100 and maybe 175, probably about 175 yards. We had the honor. We had won 15. We have 16 with birdies. So we came to 17, and if I remember the numbers correctly, and they may be off by one or two, but they were, I believe they were either 10 or 11 under, and we were either 9 or 10 under. Mark gets up there. I've knocked it on the green, but I'm about 15 feet away. Mark almost holds it, and it looks like it's hanging on the lip, and as it turns out, we get up there, he was about a foot from the hole. And Doug gets up, knocks it on the green, and uh, Alfieri gets up and knocks it in the hole. Shit. So we lose, we lose two and one, and they were either um, twelve under or thirteen under, and we were two behind them <laughs> after they aced us on seven. So they close you out on with a hole in one on seventeen. And that was yes, yeah, and that was I, I will agree. I agree with Jim. It's definitely the best two-man match that I have ever been involved in myself. And, I mean, it just, it was fantastic and uh, unfortunate. (laughs) Uh, Final question for you. We're going to wrap this episode. You have given us just a lot of great content and uh, just a lot of great stories, and it's been a thrill. But I want to ask you, what does does 69-year-old Rick Wolf say to 21-year-old Rick Wolf right now? Looking back and what in, you've done the last 40, 50 years in competitive golf, maybe something, if you can go back and say, maybe do this different or maybe pay attention to this different. You know, I have thought about that over the years. And with the circumstances as they were throughout that time frame, I have no regrets at all. Love it. I think I made the right decisions on all, on all of those, to yeah. tell you the truth, yeah. Well, uh, it was worth the wait, my friend. And we really appreciate the, the, the time. And uh, Well, I enjoyed it as well. I, I 
appreciate you asking me and I appreciate your doggedness and, and sticking to it. And, and we finally got to We it. finally and, got it done. And there you have it. Another great episode here at the Back of the Range. Thanks so much to Rick Wolf for joining us on our 70th episode. Don't forget, we have towels, we have trucker hats, we have all sorts of merch available on our website, thebackoftherange.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Subscribe and Apple Podcasts. We'll do it again next week here at the Back of the Range.